Our second Bible reading this morning is John 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, please do keep that page of the service program open because we'll be referring to that Bible passage during the sermon. Why don't we bow our heads and pray for God's power to be at work among us. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Father Almighty, we have to admit that by nature we are in the dark and we're simple. So we pray that your words would be unfolded faithfully in this sermon. And as that happens, would you give us light and understanding to help us follow Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had a sense of being left to fend for yourself, left alone to tackle a big job that you don't feel capable of doing? If you've ever been in that situation, you probably felt both overwhelmed and abandoned. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if that was how Jesus' disciples felt at this point in time. Jesus had told them when he first appeared to them, As the Father sent me, 
so I am sending you. That's a big job he is sending them to do. The Father had sent Jesus to provide salvation and to proclaim salvation. The disciples don't have to do the job of providing salvation. That was finished. But the proclaiming side of things was only just beginning. And Jesus was sending them to do that work. What's more, he himself would not be with them in person. He had told them he was going away. He had told them he was ascending to the Father. It's true that Jesus had promised to give the disciples the Holy Spirit to be with them forever. But the disciples may not have tuned in fully to that encouraging piece of information. The disciples typically paid close attention to challenging news and uh, much less attention to positive news. So it's reasonable to think that the disciples were feeling both overwhelmed and abandoned. And this fishing expedition that we read about at the start of John chapter 21 looks like an act of escapism. Their escapist response to the pressure they're feeling. Please look down to verse 2 and I'll read from there. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, had been fishermen before they began following Jesus. The other four disciples mentioned may also have been ex-fishermen. So this fishing expedition is a case of men returning to very familiar work. They're picking up where they left off three years beforehand. That's not to say they're turning their backs permanently on the mission Jesus has given them. The conversation at the start of verse 3 seems more aimless than that. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. The others say, hey, we'll go with you. There's no sign in verse 3 of a long-term plan to return to fishing as a way of life. It's better to think of this fishing trip as an act of escapism, a way for these disciples to forget about the daunting task they've been given and instead do something they know they're good at. One thing we should notice is the word night in verse 3. John could have told the story without using that word, but he chooses to include it and it ought to catch our eye because in John's gospel it's a loaded word. In John's gospel, night symbolizes spiritual darkness. In John chapter 11, for example, Jesus says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And he's talking symbolically. He's saying, if we don't follow him, the light of the world, if we don't have the light he gives, life will be like stumbling around in the middle of the night. John uses night as a symbol of spiritual darkness, which gives a deeper meaning to John's words at the end of verse 3. That night they caught nothing. It's John's way of saying that these disciples, and he himself was one of them, one of the sons of Zebedee, 
They've lost their way spiritually. Their eyes are not fixed on Jesus and the task he's given them. And that's the background to this third resurrection appearance. A sense of being overwhelmed and abandoned, drift and distraction. That background is worth keeping in mind because everything that happens in the rest of the passage has the effect of reassuring the disciples. Jesus reassures them that with his help they can do the task ahead of them and they haven't been abandoned. He will be with them. We could sum up those lessons like this. Jesus offers the disciples his powerful cooperation and his personal companionship. And what he offers to them, he also offers to us. We'll look at both of those lessons in turn for the rest of the sermon. First, Jesus offers his powerful cooperation. Please take a look at verses 4 and 5. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. I remember walking along a riverbank as a a child with my dad, and we saw some people fishing ahead of us, and uh, he gave me some advice. He said, Don't ever say to someone fishing, Have you caught anything? If you want to find out what they've caught, It's better to say something like, any luck? That was Dad's advice, and that's sensible advice, isn't it? So frustrating to be out fishing and you you haven't caught anything, and up pops a chipper onlooker saying, have you caught anything? What could be more annoying? But Jesus doesn't seem to let those considerations hold him back. He doesn't mind stepping on his disciples' toes on this occasion, probably because he knows what is about to happen. He shouts out to them from the shoreline, Children, do you have any fish? The word translated children could also be translated lads. So it it may not have sounded strange to the disciples, but it is also the word for children. On top of that, in the original language, there's a way of asking a question that expects the answer no. And that is how Jesus frames his question here in verse 5. He's expecting them to say no. So Jesus really does seem to be rubbing it in. He calls them children. He He asks them that question no unsuccessful fisherman wants to be asked. And he asks it in a way that expects a negative answer. Jesus seems to be drawing attention to their neediness. So he asks, children, do you have any fish? And the disciples shout back, probably through gritted teeth, no. It's the kind of one-word answer parents of grumpy teenagers will recognize. But then Jesus does something else that I'm sure my dad would have told me not to do. He gives these highly experienced fishermen some advice. The disciples still haven't realized who the man on the shore is, so it's a little hard to know why they actually go ahead and do what he says. Perhaps they're desperate to prove him wrong so that he'll leave them alone. They follow his instructions and cast their net on the right-hand side of the boat 
And then there's a thrashing, a, a kind of boiling. There's more fish than water. When the disciples try to haul the net on board, they can't heave it into the boat because there are so many large fish in the net. That brings John, the beloved disciple, to one conclusion. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. True to character, Peter impulsively, enthusiastically launches himself into the water to try to get to Jesus first. Surely it would have been better for him to leave that outer garment on the boat instead of swimming with extra soggy clothing wrapped around him. Whatever the reason, it's a striking eyewitness detail that extra layer that Peter puts on. And uh, it's not the only eyewitness detail. In verse 8, John records the distance from the boat to the land. About 100 yards, he says. And uh, in verse 11, he records the precise number of fish they caught. As we would expect, this early morning encounter with the resurrected Jesus was etched on John's memory. But the miraculous catch of fish does more than simply reveal the true identity of the man on the shoreline. The miracle also reminds the disciples of Jesus' great power, power that will still be available to them for their mission in the years to come. For a group of men feeling overwhelmed, that is exactly the lesson they need to take to heart. They have intimidating work to do, but Jesus will empower their work. What Jesus says in verse 10 must have been so encouraging for the disciples to hear. He tells them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. He speaks as if they have done the work. And in a sense, they have. They did cast the net into the water following his instructions. And they did drag the net into shore. They caught the fish. And yet the power came from Jesus. If it wasn't for him, they would have sailed home without a single sardine for their trouble. This episode teaches the disciples that when they work with Jesus' powerful cooperation, they can do more than they could ever imagine. Now, time after time, in John's Gospel, we're supposed to recognize a symbolic meaning alongside the literal meaning. Birth, water, bread, light, sheep, branches. In John's Gospel, all those physical things symbolize spiritual realities. It would be odd if, after all the symbolism elsewhere in John's Gospel, there was no symbolism here. The simplest symbolic reading of this miracle is to say that it symbolizes the work of catching people that the disciples are about to undertake. Those words of Jesus from chapter 20, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, they're still hanging in the air like the chime of a bell hangs in the air after the bell has been struck. Jesus is sending out the disciples to proclaim salvation to spread the good news like a net and gather in a great catch of people like this bulging net full of fish. The miracle is a real physical miracle, 
but it represents the global people fishing that's about to begin. The Bible commentator Bruce Milne puts it like this, fishing was a symbol for their mission. With Jesus now raised from the dead and his ascension impending, the hour of that mission is at hand. This incident therefore becomes a parable of their impending work and ours." End quote. Since we're now seeing the symbolic value of the miracle, we should take a closer look at that number, 153. Something interesting that the Bible commentaries point out is that 153 is what's known as the triangular number of 17. The triangular number of 17. Think of the triangle of pins at the end of a bowling lane. You've got one pin, then two pins, then three pins, then four pins in a triangle. If you've been bowling recently, you'll know that triangle made up of one, two, three, four rows contains 10 pins in total. Well, imagine that triangle of pins at the end of the bowling lane isn't just one, then two, then three, then four. This new triangle is made up of 17 rows. One pin, then two pins, then three pins, then four pins, then five pins, then six pins, all, all the way up to 17 pins. The total number of pins in that perfect triangle would be 153. That's why, math that's why mathematicians say the triangular number of 17 is 153. What's that got to do with the global catching of people that we've been thinking about? Well, 17 is 7 plus 10. The English word 17 tells you that it's 7 plus 10. And the Greek word for 17 makes it even harder to miss. It's, it's made up of three little Greek words, the word for 7, the word for and, and the word for 10. 7 and 10. So for someone seeking symbolic meaning in that number, 153, it's really not too hard to get to the numbers 7 and 10, which in the Bible represent perfection and completion, wholeness, the seven days of creation, the Ten Commandments. It's also worth noting that 7 times 10 is 70, which is the number of nations in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. So the number 153, the triangular number of 17, speaks of wholeness and completeness. It fits with that detail later in verse 11. The net was not torn. The number caught in the water was the number brought to land. Now you may well think that everything I've just been saying is reading far too much into the number 153. You may say, Come on, that number is just another eyewitness detail with no extra symbolic meaning. That's okay if that's where you are. This sermon does not hinge on the interpretation of that number. But what we should all agree on is that Jesus will oversee the catching of people and he will make sure that the number of people brought into his kingdom is perfect and complete. Listen to these words of Jesus from earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, 
Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That's a truth we should all agree on. Jesus won't lose any of the people given to him by the Father. He will raise them up on the last day to live with him forever. He calls us to contribute to that gathering of people. We're involved. We've got work to do. But Jesus supplies the power and he controls the outcome. We're instruments in his hands. At the start of the sermon, we tried putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. We saw they were likely feeling overwhelmed by the task ahead. The miraculous catch of fish is so relevant to their situation. Its message is that Jesus will supply the power and control the outcome. He'll oversee the outcome. He will cooperate with the disciples in their task. There was no need for them to feel overwhelmed. And the same is true for us. The task of proclaiming Jesus' salvation to the ends of the earth, earth, it's still unfinished. Today's passage teaches us to look expectantly to Jesus for his powerful cooperation in the mission he's given us. It is so good to play a part in the global catch of people that God has planned for his son. We should long to hear the people gathering equivalent of those words in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Good Shepherd Anglican Church, like any gospel preaching church, is a missionary venture. And so as you help to keep our church going Sunday by Sunday, attending, singing, greeting, praying, reading, giving, welcoming, you're living out those words of Jesus, the mission he gives his disciples. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We have high hopes that Jesus will use us in his global catching of people. We have high hopes he's already using us, not only through our ministry here in New York, but also through our financial support of missionaries elsewhere and our prayers for them. We are part of the global endeavor that Jesus is empowering. We're part of it. Let's keep on playing our part, confident in Jesus' power. The ultimate outcome is secure. It is a wonderful thing to play your part in a task with a sure outcome. We've seen that Jesus offers his disciples his powerful cooperation. That's the first of the two lessons Jesus teaches the disciples through his third resurrection appearance. The second lesson, and uh, we'll look at this one more briefly, is that Jesus offers his personal companionship. Let's look down, please, to verses 12 through 14. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
Jesus is preparing the disciples for his physical absence. He's been raised from the dead, but he's no longer physically with them all of the time, as he had been before. Instead, he appears to them at intervals. What's more, he appears to them with a new resurrection body, and it's different to his previous body. Theologians say it's his previous body, but glorified, so it looks different. In fact, it's so different that according to verse 12, even though the disciples do believe that they are with the resurrected Jesus, they would have asked him, who are you, if they had dared? His body had changed. So Jesus is preparing them for his physical absence. It won't be long before these occasional appearances come to an end. Jesus will ascend to the Father and the disciples will be left without his physical company. But it wouldn't be right for them to feel abandoned when that time comes because they will still be able to enjoy his company spiritually. Peter, one of those disciples there on the beach, would later write these words in 1 Peter, Though you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter's describing the relationship of Christians with the ascended Jesus Christ. It's a loving joyful relationship. Here in John 21 on the beach, Jesus shows the disciples that even though he hadn't been with them physically for some time, all the time since his last resurrection appearance, even though he hadn't been with them, he knew where they were and he knew what they would need, that breakfast of freshly baked bread and freshly cooked fish. So it shouldn't be a huge leap for them to believe that after he's ascended, he will still know where they are and he'll still know what they need. In verse 13, there's a slightly strange emphasis on the bread. John says Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Bread takes center stage. Fish has become an afterthought. Surely that's because the real food here on the beach is Jesus himself, his company and friendship. And earlier in John's Gospel, knowing Jesus is compared to eating bread. In John 6 verse 35, Jesus describes himself as bread. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Later in that chapter, Jesus explains that he takes away our hunger by giving us eternal life. And he does that by going to his sacrificial death on the cross, where he was punished in our place. Listen to these words from John 6. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's a life-saving meal that continues to satisfy a person forever. 
And uh, if, if you have never truly received Jesus as your bread, come to him today for all that he offers. If you've been following him for years, know that the same Jesus who lovingly gave his flesh for you at the cross wants you to keep eating. He wants you to enjoy his loving companionship, which is personally available to you at all times and in all places. With Jesus, every day can be a breakfast on the beach day, if you see what I mean. If you seek him through his word and through prayer and through fixing your eyes on him, every day can be a breakfast on the beach with Jesus' day. In 1637, the Scottish Christian Samuel Rutherford wrote to his friend James Beatty, I wish you a share of my feast. Sweet, sweet has Jesus' love been to me. There is as much in our Lord's pantry as will satisfy all his children. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for offering us your powerful cooperation in the mission you've given us. Please grant us that power, that help. We need it. And we thank you also for your personal companionship. It is good to know you. Help us to love you more and to be more conscious of your love for us. Amen.